Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Law School Lounge podcast. This is a Carolina Academic Press production where we discuss everything law school. The Law School Lounge is a place for students and faculty alike to discuss law school and the law. We hope you'll hang out with us for a while. Hello, hello. We are back here at the Law School Lounge. This is your host, Crystal Norton. And my conversation with Professor Tanya Monastir continues in this episode. And we move on from strategies on note-taking to strategies on handling your classes in law school. And by that, I mean what is called the Socratic method. The Socratic method is a specific type of teaching that is commonly used in law school classrooms in the United States. And because it can be really off-putting in the sense that you will get called on and asked to answer questions in front of all of your classmates, Many students worry about the Socratic method. They worry about how to prepare for class. And so in this conversation, Tanya and I talk about what you should really do in order to handle the Socratic method and best use class preparation time as well as class time itself. So let's get started. Let's start with just talking about, because going back to our first gen conversation, I remember they were like, yeah, the Socratic method is what they use. Watch the paper chase. And I was like, don't know what any of that means. Um, So let's just talk first about what the Socratic method is. How would you define it or what would you say it is? Yeah, well, I guess first I have to say that I went to law school in Canada and in England and neither place used the Socratic method. So both places just used a lecture method, which I think made my life a lot easier. And so, um, so I, I grew up on the system or I, you know, I went to law school, um, with the system where it was just a continuation of undergrad, which really lent itself to just, you know, copious note taking and not having this fear of God put in me. So I didn't have that. And I appreciate that it's different in American law schools. And I, I don't necessarily know that that's a good thing. Like, I'm not here to sort of debate the merits of the Socratic method. It is what it is. It's used by by professors. Um, it endures. I think nowadays it maybe looks different than it did 10 or 20 years ago. And so there's more of like sometimes a soft Socratic method or a panel system or, you know, it's different. So I don't think we can have like you know, a perfect definition of it, but it's this idea that um, there is interactive questioning dialogue between the professor and the students in order to get at the information that is sought to be elicited, right? And so what that looks like on the ground will be different. I do a lot of lecturing. I would say that maybe 40% of my class is lecturing and the rest is sort of this this questioning. Um, and my questioning is maybe different than other professors because it's more geared towards working through, um, analytical thinking as opposed to what I might 
pejoratively call sharpshooting. So I'm not like, and so what, how much were they seeking in damages or what was the name of the broker in the trans? Like, I'm not looking for those little details in the case. I'm looking for like, did you basically get what was going on? Like there was a transaction here and it was for a lot of money and now somebody backed out. Like, I'm just like, do you get sort of what's going on? And now let's work through some of these steps. And so my Socratic questioning is more something that you can't prepare for because it's not in the case, right? I'm not asking details about the case so much as I am trying to help expand your knowledge of the law in light of what we just like learned. Other professors maybe are, I think they are different in that they do test the different aspects of the case and what did the majority say and what did the dissent say and, you know, what about this? What about that? And so, you know, students have to be prepared for kind of the gamut of any type of questioning. And that is scary as hell. Like as somebody who's introverted, like the idea that I could just be sitting there and somebody would be like, Ms. Montessier, so based on the case you read yesterday, what was blah, blah, blah? And I'd be like, I don't know, right? Like, and you know, I think a lot of students just get so terrified that they go blank and, you know, then they quote unquote bomb their cold call and it's, you know, like it's an emotional disaster for them. So there's this whole layer of fear associated with the Socratic method. And I, um, I feel for students and I don't think it's the best way to learn. And so my, my Socratic is a little different, although it's, it's still scary. So uh, all this to say that what should students do about the Socratic method? My answer is don't worry about it at all. And so much easier said than done. Don't prepare for it. Don't over prepare for it. Don't like sit there in class in fear that you're going to get called on. Read what you need to read for class, underline, take marginal notes, do whatever you want to do before class, but don't over read. Don't over prepare. If you get called on, say something, right? Try your best. If it doesn't go well, life goes on. Professor won't care. Your classmates won't care. You'll be mortified. You'll get over it, right? Like the idea that you are going to go throughout your law school journey, just being afraid of cold calls. And because of that, you're not taking the steps you need to, to actually prepare doesn't make sense. And so fear is a very, very powerful motivator. And I, and I am concerned that Fear of the Socratic method makes students overprepare for things that aren't that important, like individual classes are not that important. The exam is, right? And so when you overprepare for class and underprepare for the exam, you're looking at a B or lower, right? Right. Well, and I, I think so. A couple things based yeah. off of your wonderful explanation. <laughs> I feel I, like I was meandering. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it was wonderful because I think it's it's accurate to say that. The Socratic method doesn't look the same to everyone. Whether that's correct or not is another question, but it doesn't look the same across professors and across classrooms. It just doesn't. Uh, And I think personally, when done properly, it can be really helpful, but there's this sort of automatic assumption that if you put Socratic method on something, that means it is going to help the students in your classroom be better lawyers. Mm -hmm. 
But just because you do something that you call the Socratic method does not mean that it is going to help your students be better attorneys or practitioners or whatever they end up doing. And I mean, I I can recall in my head the professors who used the Socratic method very well and who did so in such a way that it did help me as someone who ended up litigating a lot, right? So for example, there was one professor who said, you are not going to step into a courtroom and know absolutely everything there is to know about the law. It's never going to happen. Mm-hmm. You're not going to walk into a courtroom and not have to look at a piece of paper to remember every single fact from the case you've been working on, right? Like depending on your circumstances, that's just not realistic. Right. And so part of being a lawyer and being a good lawyer is spotting what you don't know or something that you're not as familiar with and becoming very familiar with it and knowing it inside and out. That's half Mm -hmm. of what you do every day. And so that particular professor, when they would call on us in class, they would say, tell me what you don't know. And then when you will walk through what you don't know so that you understand how to learn the things you don't know because you're never going to know everything. It's just impossible, Mm -hmm. right? So that particular professor, we would talk about a case And they would say, okay, just summarize the facts. Like, what was the issue? You know, those basic things. And then they would jump into hypo mode and be like, okay, so this, we read this case. Imagine if the facts were a little bit different and they went like this, what would you say the analysis would be? Right. And then they'd walk us through the analysis. But if at any point you were like, I'm not sure, or I think this is the best answer and this is why, but you know, and then they would walk us through how to do it. And it made everyone, I think, feel very comfortable because Mm -hmm. you were able to admit when you didn't know something without fear, but it also made people want to prepare because they wanted to talk about this stuff in class and feel confident doing so. So it was a nice way, in my personal opinion, that they handled the Socratic method. Um, But there were other people who were like, what was the damages in this case? And it's like, really, nobody needs to know that out in the world. Right. Um, right? Like, yeah, nobody, I, not, you're not going to be asked those questions. You're just not. Yeah. I think one of the um, challenges I've encountered is that students want to get the right answer. It's like they yes. want like a pat on the back. And the gold so I tell them like right from the beginning, I don't necessarily want you to get the right answer. Like I want us to work through the process of thinking about an issue. And so if you say something and then I say, well, I feel like that's not, that's not quite right. Can anyone see why that would be flawed logic? And then, you know, you bring other people into the discussion. The goal of that is to expand your thinking and to really see like both sides of of the issue and to see the flaws in your logic. But students feel like, but I got the answer wrong. Right. And, and it's, it's not about growing. It's not about thinking deeper about something. It's about getting a check mark. Right. And so I'm having, I have trouble at times getting students out of the, I got to get the right answer. Right. Like I don't, I don't need you to get the right answer, right? There and sometimes there's not a right answer. It's Most about of the time, I'd say. growing, right? <laughs> yeah. And so I think like in this society where we're just like used to like, you know, getting validation that like we're we did good, right? And nobody wants to be told that, like, oh, maybe we need to think about something else. And so I think like um 
I try to say that up front. I say that all the time. Don't worry about wrong answers. I want you to get them wrong because you learn from wrong answers. I mean, again, science show, I'm not big into science, right? Science shows that you learn more from wrong answers than from right answers, right? Because when you get something wrong, you're never going to get it wrong. You're, you're never going to get it wrong again. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I think that that's just me and how I do it. Like we talked about, it's going to look different in different classrooms. And I think this is part of the um, problem, right? The reason students have sort of whiplash and they're feeling all confused is because like no two professors are going to have the same expectations. And just like I say, I don't want you to get the right answers, then the next professor's gonna say, I want you to get the right answers, right? I want to make sure that you're reading carefully. And so, you know, students can be forgiven for being a little confused as to like, oh my God, what is this supposed to look like? What do you want from me, right? Yeah, well, and I mean, this whole question started out with how do I prepare for a law school Mm -hmm. class, right? And I think, unfortunately, our answer is you prepare for the classes depending on how your professor kind of wants you to prepare for the class to some extent, right? To at some least, extent, to some without extent. losing sight of the ultimate goal, right? Not right. sacrificing the ultimate goal of doing well on the exam for over-preparing for individual classes. Because I can't even tell you how many times I've seen students say like, but I just spent five hours reading for this class. I'm like, well, you need to make that three right? Because you need the extra two hours on the back end to be doing your outlining. They're like, I don't have enough hours in the day. I'm like, you just, you have to make them, right? You're going to need to let go of something. And if that something is your like third read through of the case, like then it just has to be that way. Right. I can still think about it actually, but every school has that those like horror stories that have been sort of just circulating for years about mm-hmm. that one student who just mm-hmm. like really messed up their cold call and they got chewed out by a professor. Whether the stories are even true or not, nobody really knows. <laughs> right. uh, but the reality too is that there are professors who are rough. Like there are professors who are rough. Mm-hmm. And that again, that's okay. Uh, to be quite fair, I'd say them being really rough is maybe more of a them problem than a, a you problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, 90 some odd percent of the time, if you just show effort, care, and attention in your answer, yeah, the professor is going to be like, they prepared, right? That's what I meant by saying, acknowledging what you don't know and what you do know. At least that shows I prepared, right? I read the case. I really understood this. This got me a little confused. This was the holding. I'm not entirely, you know, at least that shows I yeah, prepared. I, I think did that's what I all could. we care about. Like, did you right. do the reading and have you come to class prepared? And that that's it. Like, I mean, even the tough professors can't expect that you're going to get everything right. And And if there is one of these disastrous things that happens, you know, and you get chewed out or whatever, like such is life, right? I mean, I don't think you should, like so many students live in fear of that happening. I just think you have to kind of let it go and just do your thing, right? Sure. And I mean, looking back at law school, I don't know, I can't speak for you, but I don't remember, I don't remember anyone messing up cold calls. I don't sound like I think about it you know you think about all the things you did well in law school and all the things you maybe disliked or liked about law school but you don't necessarily worry about that moment and to be quite honest 
you don't think about it that much in court either. Like once you there, if you think saying something stupid in a classroom is embarrassing, wait until you say something stupid in court, which I'm sorry, I don't care how good of an attorney you are. You're going to, at some point or another, say something in court and be like, whoops. <laughs> and really the, the, I think the good thing about the Socratic method is making you feel comfortable enough. And when that happens, right? Mm-hmm. Like you inevitably might misstate something and you have to correct it. That happens. Mistakes, accidents, things like that happen. Like you might cite to a section of law and you're like, just kidding, your honor. It's really this <laughs> section of law, right? Like, and that's okay. Everybody will just move past it. Like it's because it's just not that big a deal. But when you're first having it happen, it does feel like such a big deal. But we can tell you, I would assume from your shaking your head and your agreeing that like 10 years, even five or a couple years down the road, you're not going to think about that. <laughs> you're no, gonna think absolutely. About, and I, you know, right? I think a lot of the rationales that are given in support of the Socratic method don't really stand up all that much. I mean, how many times have you heard the Socratic method helps you think on your feet? That's like the expression that's used all the time. And, you know, I I just don't buy it, right? Because what you're going to be questioned about in class is something you read about either earlier that day or the night before for the first time, and you're not a lawyer yet, and you're barely familiar with this area of law, and now all of a sudden you're expected to be an expert on it in front of 60 or 100 other people in the room when you're like terrified. <laughs> and so I just think that's so different than the context in which thinking on your feet happens in real life, that it's not like a good testing ground, right? Like I do view the Socratic method more as kind of sharpshooting than I do as, um, you know, helping you become a better public speaker, right? Because I think in law, there's a variety of contexts in which you can be asked to do public speaking. And you mentioned litigation. That's certainly one of them. But, you know, if you're litigating a case, presumably, you know it inside and out. You know the facts inside and out. You know the law inside and out. You're prepared for the other side's arguments. And so thinking on your feet and speaking on your feet um, is very different in that context than reading about promissory estoppel for the first time the night before. You know, Thinking on your feet, speaking on your feet um, happens in the context of just regular law practice in in meetings or in some sort of like client call. But again, like you are more well-versed in what you're talking about when you are called to say something, right? And so that's why I just don't think it's a particularly good parallel if that's what we're using it for, right? To, to prepare students to, you know, to be prepared to, to speak when, when called upon, because it's just not the way it happens in real life. And so when professors say that, like, I just tell students to be like, okay, whatever, like I I will learn to do public speaking. If that's a concern for students, like in my own time and in my own way, I don't necessarily think the Socratic method is what is going to prepare me for public speaking. Well, and I I think that's part of the problem. I think what you said touches upon part of the problem is that the Socratic method has become synonymous with whether or not you are going to be Mm -hmm. good in law school, an exemplary attorney, and have the skills necessary to succeed. And I think that the Socratic method, purely my opinion, has been warped Mm -hmm. in such a way that it is not at all paralleling what 
you do need to learn as far as your skill set as a good student, as a good essay writer, as a good speaker, as a good, any of those things, right? I think that it's just kind of been assumed, right? Which we know a lawyer should not be making any assumptions anyway, but I think it's assumed at this point, if I stick Socratic method on it and call it that, that means I'm testing skills that people who go out in the real world and practice need to know. But the reality is it's just not true. I mean, and, and I think that's where you get this sort of diversion with different professors doing different things, because I think some professors see that, right? They're like, well, this isn't going, like, it sounds like from, I've never had the pleasure of sitting in on one of your classes, but it sounds like the way you- I don't know if anyone's ever called it a pleasure, <laughs> but <okay. laughs> But it sounds like the way you use the Socratic method, it's teaching a skill. It's teaching them yes. how to think through problems and then how to Correct. verbalize them. And, and that mm-hmm. skill is- 1000% important to being an attorney, no matter what setting you're in, whether you're speaking with colleagues or you're speaking with your paralegal or you're speaking with the client or you're speaking in court, you need to be able to think through things and then verbalize them. That's inevitably in some way, something you're going to have to do. Right. But recalling minute details is not doing that. You're not thinking through that. You're just using your recall. Um, right. and so it's not thinking on your feet, in my opinion, I think you're right. Yeah. And then the other piece of this that um, people don't talk about enough is that the Socratic method really sort of rewards a certain kind of mm. student, kind of your prototypical, stereotypical law student, you know, the the gunner, right? <laughs> and who typically tends to be somebody who is not going to be a first generation student who's going to, you know, have maybe parents that are professionals who has taken debate in high school and college and, you know, that sort of, of student and women in particular, um, students from, you know, first generation families, students whose first language is not English, students of color, um, they tend to be more fearful, I think, of the Socratic method. And then when you superimpose the messaging that to be good at the Socratic method is important to being a lawyer, Mm -hmm. I think contributes to those feelings of insecurity and inadequacy. And it's just, it's not true. I mean, I... Well, I, I told you at the beginning, I didn't, we didn't use Socratic method at my law school. So I didn't have that experience. But if I did, I would have never put up my hand. I would have been terrified of speaking in class. I never said anything for three years of law school, unless it was a clarification question that I absolutely needed to know the answer to. So like, I, I would have been terrible at the Socratic method. And, and yet I did very well in law school. I graduated first in my class. The Men who had their hand up all the time were asking questions and participating. They didn't graduate first in their class, right? And so I don't think there's a correlation between being successful in law school and in law and in life and, you know, kicking ass at the Socratic method. I think it tends to exacerbate pre-existing insecurities. And there are better ways to get people out of their shell to learn how to quote unquote think on their feet, to be more comfortable in public than than the Socratic method. True. And I, I would say that law schools have expanded quite a bit in ways of trying to reach students who maybe the Socratic method doesn't get into their wheelhouse. And I, I say that by things like more experiential learning, more internships, mm-hmm. more clinics, because 
a lot of that is practice oriented, right? Yeah. And skills oriented. And, and I think schools are shifting their mindset to be a little bit more in that area where students are able to learn the skills that maybe the Socratic method does not pull from them. Right. And one other thing I want to mention, you brought up how depending on your background, your circumstances, the Socratic method can feel very different to each student. Mm-hmm. And I'll never forget my very good friend in law school. He was born and raised in New Orleans and he had a very thick accent. And he looked at me one class and he was like, I just know I'm going to get called on this class. And I'm like, well, that's okay. Like you prepared, we prepared. And he's like, no, I'm just really nervous to speak in front of a lot of people because of my accent and the way Mm -hmm. that I articulate myself. But that's such an added pressure it is. to to feel. And he felt throughout law school that he had to change the way he spoke and dictated himself regularly in order to just answer or raise questions in class. And that extra burden mm-hmm. is just so hard. I mean, it's horrible. I mean, I... And it's, I'm from New Jersey, but I don't really have my Jersey accent anymore. But uh, I think that's one of the reasons why he said it to me is because whenever I talk to my parents, he's like, my goodness, who are you? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Because I myself have changed my accent quite a bit over time Mm -hmm. to fit into what a quote, good accent, a smart accent should sound like. And the Socratic method really does bring out a lot of people's insecurities in that way. So not even necessarily about getting it right or answering the question. It's about other things going on as well. And I, I think that as law schools become more diverse, those questions and those considerations are becoming more prominent as they should, mm-hmm. as they should. Yeah, no, I mean, this is not the first time I've, I've heard stuff like that about students being insecure about their accents. And it's, you know, it's just heartbreaking to me. And it's just one more thing that the student who's already scared, right. Mm-hmm. And doesn't know what's going on in law school and feels out of place now feels like they're just waiting to be called on. And then they're going to feel embarrassed. And, you know, I'm, I don't, even think that the other students would, I don't think it's an issue in terms of like how other students react or treat them. I just think it's an internal issue where you feel uncomfortable. So yeah, it, it is really tough. And you know, sometimes with those students who who do come to me at the beginning of the semester and express, you know, concerns like that or concerns about um, you know, clinical anxiety or whatnot, you know, we try to have workarounds so that they're able to participate in class in a way that's that's more comfortable for them because I don't want class to be an uncomfortable experience, right? I don't want you to be sitting there terrified, right? Like me cold calling you is not that important in the grand scheme of things. And so right. if we can if we can get you to raise your hand occasionally and work out an alternative way to participate, then that that's fine for me. I don't, I don't know if that's the norm um, at other places, but just the idea that people would be sitting there scared really, you know, really hurts me to the core. That's not what I want. Yeah. And I mean, I, I just remember sitting there and I just remember thinking, you're so smart. You have so much to offer. And the fact that this is an obstacle breaks my heart, 
you know, and the fact that the, that the structure we're operating in reinforces that obstacle for you to some degree mm-hmm. makes me feel like this needs to change. <laughs> that was my thought in that moment. Right. And, you know, I think though, in your book, you say this, <laughs> you say this one set of lines that I wish someone would had said to me oh, okay. when I was kind of thinking about law school. So I would like to close out with that, if that's okay with okay, you. Okay, sure. I, I'm like listening uh, <laughs> intently because I don't know what line you're going to pick. Well, because, uh, and I'll preface it by saying one of the things about being a lawyer is people forget that everyone involved in the system is a person. Judges are people, other attorneys are people, clients are people, professors are people, mm-hmm. right? And so you say this, frankly, I'm focused on me and making sure I did a good job. I'm not focused on your personal performance in class. I'm not saying this to make you feel better. I'm saying it because it's true. Your professor will not remember that you flubbed a cold call. Seriously. (laughs) And it's true. Yeah. 100% (laughs) It's true. Like now that I've started teaching as well, I'm like, I'm, I just want to make sure you're learning and I just want to make sure you're enjoying the class and whatever the case may be. And if you make a mistake, I think internally, okay, did I, what can I change to make sure my students aren't making those mistakes again in the future? Right. I'm not necessarily looking at you as the student being like, it's your fault. I generally think it must be my, like we need to work on thing or I need to convey material more clearly. We need to review this. I need to teach it a different way, like something like that. But by no means is it a strike against the student in my mind, at least. And so that just really resonated with me. Like they're going to forget it. You can forget it and we can move on. And seriously, no one is going no to hold one it against cares, you. right? Like, and I think that's the moral of the story mm-hmm. here. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. All right, everyone. And that brings this discussion about class and the Socratic method in law school to a close. I hope that you found value in my discussion with the incredible Professor Tanya Monastir on this issue. I hope that we gave you some insight, some confidence in moving forward in your classes. If you have a moment, please take a second and leave a five-star review on whatever platform you use to tune into the Law School Lounge. Also, you can find us at Law School Lounge on Twitter and Instagram. Give us a follow to learn about upcoming episodes. And last but not least, if you'd like to get a hold of me to give some recommendations or propose some episodes, go ahead and email me at Law School Lounge Pod at caplaw.com. The next episode is in your feed, and it is my final discussion with Professor Monastir. And in that discussion, we are talking about the infamous law school outlined. So stay tuned. <laughs>